I'm Katrina Owen, and it is goat time. It's Goat Time, a weekly podcast where we discuss interesting topics around the Go programming language, the community, and everything in between. If you currently write Go or aspire to, this is the show for you. We are back for another episode of Go Time. This episode is number 19. Today on the show, we have myself, Eric St. Martin. We have Kalicia Campos also here. Hi. And Brian Kettleson. Hello. And our special guest today is none other than Katrina Owen. Hello. Uh, why don't you go ahead and give everybody a little bit of background about yourself before we get started? Uh, I work as a developer advocate at GitHub on the open source team there. And I do a lot of community stuff. I go to conferences, meet people, and a lot of open source work. I have a project named exorcism.io, which is a platform for practicing programming in a number of different languages, including Go. Yeah, exorcism has been taking off recently. Um, I, I looked probably like two weeks ago and was just completely astonished by the number of languages that are supported there now. Yeah, we, uh, we hit 32, which was kind of a big number, two times two times two times two times two, I think. <laughs> um, so we, we passed that a few weeks ago when we launched, I believe, MIPS assembly, uh, which was kind of cool. Is there a big demand for MIPS assembly? So it turns out the uh, assembly language courses in at universities often uses a textbook that uses MIPS assembly. Aha. Uh-huh. Oh, interesting. Now, see, I would actually like assembly because, I mean, most, most assembly books that I've read or seen are very much documentation and not like, how do you write idiomatic assembly, right? Yeah. Like, I don't think anything I've looked at with assembly does more than teach you kind of the individual instructions and what they do. You don't really learn patterns from that. Yeah. So that would be kind of cool. It is pretty cool. And all my free time to learn new languages. (laughs) (laughs) A language a year. You've got the next 33 years all laid out for you. Right. But by then, how many new languages will you have? Yeah, that's the problem. Yeah, your, ho- your hockey stick growth is, is slowing us down. I can't live that long. Actually, I just remember that a lot of people, myself included, keep wondering what is an idiomatic go because there's no such thing as a listing of what idiomatic go is. And it sounds like it's a mythical thing to me. And exorcism actually guides you through that. Uh, the comments that you get back on your solutions are uh, very much geared towards helping you write idiomatic go. So just by doing it, you start understanding what it is. And the comments are very helpful and and very empathetic. So highly recommend it. So let's actually step back for a second too. For anybody who's not familiar with Exorcism.io, do you want to give kind of a brief uh, introduction to what that is, Katrina? Sure. It's basically a platform for practicing the it's different from a lot of other places where you do coding challenges and katas in that there is no competition you're not competing with anyone there's no leaderboard there's no um there are no prizes or badges or anything like that this is really about the day-to-day practice of getting better at the craft of programming 
or the uh, very quick ramp up that you need when you're going to suddenly start a new project at work in Scala or Java or uh, some other language and you need um, to get into that language and get your head wrapped around the syntax of the language and the uh, conventions of that language quickly um, so that you can start producing code in a more complex environment. And now this is basically bite-sized problems to be solved that you submit and then are reviewed by by people who have more experience in the language to kind of guide you through how you might do that. Yep. Now, is that done anonymously? No. Uh, it uses your uh, GitHub username and avatar. We've talked about making it an anonymous, but for the moment, uh, we have just not um, gone down that route. The, the format, as you said, the format is, uh, of the exercise is bite-sized. It's very, very small, trivial programs like uh, calculate you know, whether or not a year is a leap year. Or, um, so it's mostly like 20, 20 line, 50 line uh, problems. And we give you a test suite, a working test suite, so that you know, uh, I guess, when you're done. Though done is just the first iteration. And then given feedback, you can um, produce a new solution, iterate on it, improve things. Those test suites are awesome, by the way. It was uh, <laughs> I, my first encounter with Go right after that, I took, started doing the exercises. And immediately I wanted to learn how to do tests. And I'm like, oh, look at that. There are tests right here. And that's where I started learning tests from. It was perfect. Awesome. They were simple. They were clear. They were concise. And they were all like all I needed to just learn the basics, the fundamentals of how to do unit tests with Go. That's awesome. I talked to someone at GopherCon who said that they learned Go. So they were a game developer in Lua. And then they were switching to Go. They used Exorcism to learn it. And when they started their new job at Fastly, they were the only person on their team that knew how to write tests in Go. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Validation right there for you. Yep. And now the reviews are, are kind of crowdsourced. These are, these are people with more experience, so they're kind of volunteering their time. Yes. So people also sign up to kind of do that as well. Yeah. The review, so it's hard, right? There's this asymmetry where people want feedback, but don't necessarily want to give feedback or know how to give feedback, how to do a code review. And it's really intimidating um, to come in and say, oh, I'm going to give someone feedback on their code, but maybe I'm not really good at Go, or I don't really feel like I know what I'm doing, or I don't, when I look at some code, I might not feel like I know, like, it's just code. How do I know what's good or not good or idiomatic or not idiomatic? So there's a, there's a barrier to entry on actually providing feedback. I think some, there's emotional side of it too, where you're afraid that somebody's trying to step out of the, their comfort zone and learn something new. And you want to support them in that and not kind of beat them down on what feel like trivial things, too. Yeah. Like you commonly see that with people that are new to code review. They, they don't want to say something. They, they see something that they'd say something to, you know, a fellow programmer that they've worked with for years, but they don't want to say it to somebody new because they don't know how they're going to kind of take that. Right. And that's part of the thing of being uh, on the Internet. You don't necessarily know the person. You probably don't know the person. And you don't know their learning style. You don't know why they're there learning Go. Like maybe they're 
maybe they're learning programming for the first time and then Go just happens to be that language. Maybe they've been programming for 20 years and Go is just for fun. Maybe they need Go desperately for a project. It's hard to know. But there is also the positive reinforcement type of feedback. And there's a lot of that on exorcism. And uh, also regarding comments, um, I heard the request for comments episode number four which is about building successful open source communities. And the guy said, well, I have this community and I built it. And one day I went on vacation and I came back and I saw people commenting using my voice. And on exorcism, because Katrina comments on things and you see her, his, her style is very, uh, it's very solid, professional way of commenting, very kind. Uh, you definitely notice it's a good comment, even if you are not familiar with the, you know, code review. So you also notice people using her voice on their comments. And I thought that was so amazing. It totally blew my mind when I started noticing that. Oh, that's interesting. So they kind of picked up the review style and the... Yes. The way to speak to people and are kind of mirroring that. Yes. And then I, I even told Katrina at one point, wow, this is so amazing. You know, you come for the code and you stay for the comments because you also learn how to comment on, on, on code. You know, you can be giving uh, corrective feedback and you can also give positive feedback and how you do it. Katrina is a pro and you will learn that either from her or from the members who are also learning from her and from each other. It's amazing. Oh, I love that. Well, I guess anybody who wants to take time out of their day to help review these, these challenges more than likely really care about trying to evolve people and aren't really going to be rude, right? Mm -hmm. like most people who are going to be rude don't want to waste their time anyway. <laughs> they're, they're elsewhere. <laughs> right. um, but you, but you, can be, you can be rude without meaning to be rude. For example, I know how to do code review, and I know what good comments look like, good empathetic comments look like. But when I'm tired, I comment on things, and then I look at it and I'm like, oh my gosh, I could have said I could have said that in a such such a ni much nicer way, and I didn't. And like, ugh, you know. So it takes practice. You you exercise that muscle. So when even when you're tired you do it the way that you think is a good way, the, the way that you want to. So I totally see how, you know, somebody commenting and seeing it coming across as rude. Maybe it wasn't intentionally rude. Obviously, those there are, those there are well, blatantly rude and the intention behind it, you can see. But some, in some cases, you just don't know. Yeah. I think an important thing to remember from both sides and I used to tell some of the guys this that were new to code review is when, when thinking about it, solving the problem is the hardest part, right? So looking at somebody else's solution and telling them how they can refine that to make it a little cleaner or a little more performant, that's significantly easier. And especially if you're already knowledgeable in the domain than it is to solve the problem. So if, if I reviewed your code, I may have a ton of things to say about your code, but if I was presented with the problem without ever seeing anybody else's solution, I may have suffered from the same things, right? So I think having that empathy and, and keeping that frame of mind that somebody, you know, this evolved as somebody's understanding of the problem evolved. 
And you weren't there for all of the small decisions along the line that led to this. You're looking at it as a completed product and thinking, how can I, how can I make this better? Especially when you're learning a new language, you don't often understand the, you don't, you're not familiar with the standard library functions and the packages. You're not familiar with how, you know, scoping works or constants work. And so you'll often see a lot of like flailing around as people try to figure out how to even get the syntax right. And then once it compiles, it's like, oh, it works. Wonderful. Let's submit that. And then it turns out that you've done all this extra stuff um, that turns out to just be noise. And you can remove, once you start understanding the underlying implementation and the underlying language um, syntax, you can start simplifying and removing some of the complexity. And you need help. You need human feedback for that. No, I think that's a fair point. And, and even with refactoring, refactoring is its own uh skill set yeah you know there's people who can look at this and like oh yeah i just have to you know extract this one method and do this and it's a whole new world that most people aren't presented with you know? yeah i used to call that running it through the eric machine because i would write horrible code and then i would give it to eric and he would make it beautiful and performant and work eric's good at that part uh, not always i mean i look at a lot of code too that even i've written and i'm like this just this doesn't look clean and i'm not quite sure how i want to start to make it prettier and more abstracted sometimes it takes a fresh pair of eyes it really does but one of the things that so i i talk about refactoring a lot and i i just realized recently that when i do a talk about refactoring i'm showing someone the clear path the obvious path the one that's obvious in hindsight and almost always when I'm actually refactoring for the first time, I have no idea where it's going to end up. I just recognize specific red flags or code smells or there are things that I don't like and that I, I choose to go down a path of exploring a cleaner solution or a better abstraction. But I don't ever know. And half the time, maybe more than half the time, I back out the, uh, the thing that I tried and I end up going a different direction. And whenever I talk about this in public, I forget to mention that part. And so it looks like I have this sort of godlike view of the end product. And um, it really isn't true. I commonly, for problems I'm not certain on where I'm going with them, I commonly will spike out something that kind of works mm -hmm. and then throw it away and start completely over now that I have a better view of, of the actual domain. Yeah, one of the things I've been learning over the past few years is how to take much, much smaller steps so that everything is passing the whole time. And as soon as I decide that I don't want to go down on one route, I can back it out and the test suite's always green. The whole red-green refactor? Yeah, mostly like stay green when you're refactoring. A lot of people will, something will break and then they're like, oh, I know what to do. I know where I'm going with this. And then it'll be broken for a long time, sometimes hours. Um, or even days at times until they get everything back under control. And I've been trying to avoid that just as an exercise to see what happens if I take a small step and I, I keep things passing the whole way. Can I add more duplication? Can I do something a little bit weird temporarily to keep things green so that everything feels more under control? That's a, that's a fair point. I'm guilty of some commit bombs myself. 
I refactored <laughs> a ton of stuff and the test suite's not quite passing for a while. I think it was in Go, like with the compiler telling you what all your types are wrong and where where you need to update the APIs. It's it's actually a lot easier. I'm I'm more reckless in Go than I am in Ruby. Now that's interesting to hear. Because I think I was significantly more reckless in Ruby than I was in Go, but Maybe I was writing poor Ruby, or maybe I'm writing poor Go. I don't know. Which which do you think it is for you? I don't think it's either. I think it's just a style thing. I think I'm less reckless at this point in Go than I ever was in Ruby, even after a few years of doing Ruby, because two things. One, the syntax is so short. It's so easy to memorize what you have to do. And two, although you are... T- haven't memorized that yeah the compiler compiler is giving you feedback so you kind of see what the errors are and again going back to my first point is that there are just just so few errors that you memorize them quickly so pretty much i don't get a whole lot compiler errors because i know what to do with the syntax i wonder if reckless is the wrong word here because with go i trust that the compiler is going to tell me about every single mistake so if i do a, a some complicated rename or start working on a like changing a type. I know that the compiler is going to tell me about every single location where I have to make that change. And in Ruby, I didn't, you know, there was nothing that was going to tell me everything. And I couldn't trust that my tests had um, all the changes. And so I had to go much more, I had to tread my way much more carefully. And in, in Go, I, I think I just feel safer with the compiler at my back. It's almost like you're more carefree. Yeah. Like you tend to, rather than looking at it from the the negative side, like, oh, you can be more reckless and go, maybe it's just you don't have to scrutinize your refactorings as much. Mm -hmm. You don't have to kind of examine them and think about all the the dynamic places that might cause problems. Yeah. So during runtime. Yeah, I can see that. So I want to touch on, before we kind of move on to other things, I want to go back to exorcism real quick because... I think that we really should try to shout out and, and get people involved because there's multiple ways to be involved, right? By submitting exercises for languages you're, you're familiar with and by helping to review code. And where is the best place to send people to do that? So there's a third option, secret door number three. Ooh, ooh. And that is go to the Go language track repository on GitHub and watch it. And then... When issues come in, um, help respond. When pull requests come in, help review them. That would be an immense help um, to keep the keep the language uh, going and the people happy. So that's that's the sort of secret um, path to maintainership <laughs> route. The other piece is the two that you mentioned, and that's um, doing the exercises, submitting them to the website. Once you submit. You can, you get access to all of the other solutions to that particular exercise. And so you can browse around and look at what other people have done, how that's different from yours. You can learn from reading their code and you can um, learn from comments that other people give on these solutions. I have a little bot that does some linting and um, a little bit of uh, static analysis in Go to give feedback. Mostly it's stuff that I was giving feedback on over and over and over again. And so I just added this to the bot so that it automates that a little bit. But yeah, uh, do the exercise and give feedback. And in order to give feedback on an exercise, I would encourage you to do 
the exercise first, just to get a little bit of feel for what the problem is and um, the different types of issues that people might run into with it. Can you give us the link to that uh, GitHub thing again and so we can make sure we get it in the show notes? Yep, for sure. Awesome. So this is a good opportunity for us to take a break and thank our first sponsor, Linode. As you know, GoTime FM is produced by the folks at ChangeLog, who are awesome. We love them so much. And ChangeLog is hosting all of their cool bits on the node servers. And the reason they're picking Linode servers is because it's really easy to get a cloud server up and running. They're rock solid. You get to choose your flavor of Linux, whatever resources you need, and locations across eight data centers in the world. You can have a Linode VM starting at just $10 a month, run your own containers, even your own private Git servers on it. They've got native SSD storage, fast 40 gigabit networks, and a control panel so you can deploy, boot, resize, and clone your VMs in just a few clicks. Kind of awesome stuff. And you can use code GOTIME20 to get two months for free. That's $20 credit if you go to linode.com com slash linodes okay so what were we talking about we were talking about exorcism um so the other thing that you recently did was the GopherCon talk which blew many of our minds i think you really were able to capture and put into words kind of what a lot of us feel about um breaking into the language that we're we're too close to the problem sometimes because we already have history there and we don't really think about you know um, like I loved your graph analogy, but yeah, I mean, that talk, I think it was probably one of the favorites there. I know a lot of people felt really close to it. That was an amazing talk. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was a terrifying talk to do <laughs> and to prepare. I don't know. I think you look like a master up on stage. Not only did it resonate with, I'm sure almost everybody in the audience personally, but it was one of the best delivered and most best delivered talks and most compelling slide decks too. So it was, it was the total package. It was a great message. It was a great delivery and a, and a beautiful slide deck. First time I've seen a presentation where there's very little text on the screen, but instead images that were emotionally evocative towards the points that you were trying to make. And, and I thought that that was a very um, strong artistic use of slides and it, it it drove home for me how how much visually you can impact a presentation without words. And I, I was really, truly impressed with the whole thing. I died with the Twinkie analogy, too. <laughs> <laughs> so the Twinkie analogy is something I think about a lot. I, and for anyone who didn't see the talk, um, when I read the language spec, the Go language spec, I felt like I knew all the words, or almost all the words. There were some there that I was completely unfamiliar with, like uh, EBMF notation is something that I've never actually uh, been faced with before. And I really felt like I was reading the ingredients list for some complicated, um, you know, food or candy, and was expected to be able to draw the conclusion of how to produce that complicated food or candy from reading the ingredients list. and. Um, it made me feel pretty inadequate as a human. No, I remember re I've read the language spec a number of times and I continuously go back to it. And it's, it's hard to, to remember all that and to kind of put it in 
in context sometimes. So it's hard to just kind of read through it. it it's small. You're right. It's, it's very small. And most of it we understand, but applying it is completely different. Yeah. The purpose of it isn't really to tell you how to write Go code. It's more to tell you how to implement the Go language. That's true, too, for alternate compiler implementations. You know, we, we mentioned a little bit earlier about idiomatic Go, and I, I, I remembered that we had a, um, a wiki resource. There's a, a code review comments section on the github.com slash golang slash go slash wiki code review comments. And it's what um, Google uses internally for their code reviews. And so if there were no other canonical source of, of what idiomatic Go code should look like. That might be a, a really good place to start. It's an awesome document. That and the effective Go document that the, the Go project has on their website. Both of those are things that I refer to constantly when um, giving feedback on Go code. It's amazing. I need to look through the code review comments one more often. I know I've looked at it in the past, but it's probably been a long time since I've since I've looked at it. And it's amazing, especially as you get older, kind of the out of sight, out of mind. Like <laughs> I feel like if I, you know, I'll be busy and I'll do stuff and I, I won't write code for a couple of months. And then I feel like somebody should put me through code, like code review boot camp again, just to ensure that I'm still doing things correctly. I actually did an experiment based on one of the exercises on exorcism of sort of collecting all of the, some solutions that were typical. Uh, so there might be like 10 or 12 different directions that people take a solution in. And so I put all of those in the document with the typical feedback that you might get if you go in that direction. And I, I kind of feel like it's, it's a code review bootcamp, a very small code review bootcamp. You get reminded of where the resources are that refer to um, certain idioms or conventions or why you m might explain how the language works in this way and why you might choose this syntax over that syntax. Um, it was an interesting experiment. I, I wish I could spend some more time developing that. Hmm. So all of this stuff that you're doing really is kind of driving towards like teaching people uh, programming and not just the language, but idioms and and how to refactor talks you've done in the past, it seems like a lot of your motivation is is to help people learn and, and to learn in ways that uh, work for them. Yeah, it's a, I'm fascinated by how people learn. And I'm also fascinated by how, how often we teach people badly, like we the the tools that we put in place, or the the systems that we use often work for some people, but not for others. And the result is often that some people are left behind or left out and left feeling that they are not smart enough or good enough uh, or competent or they can't become programmers or they can't become whatever it is. And I feel that that's um, a tragedy really for not just the people who are left behind, but for the community itself. We lose so much richness of experience, so much rich richness of all of these people with all of these experiences and points of view and these ways of solving problems. And we don't have access to that if we only teach people in one way. 
Yeah, I I love the approach of the the small wins and and kind of working on these things because we, we talked um, was it last episode? No, the one prior to uh, Brian Lyles and and some of the same stuff was coming up too where where we talked about have needing to have some of those small successes because if you're just approached with one problem. There may be, you know, 10 different things you have to learn and understand to deploy a website, right? Yeah. Like especially it, what's DNS, what's HTTP, HTML, CSS, JavaScript. What's a text right? editor? Yeah. Oh, goodness. Now I need to store stuff in the database. Now I need to learn SQL. And you get hit with this. And it's easy for us to to talk to friends or family or somebody who's interested in it. And they go, oh, yeah, all you got to do is learn HTML and CSS and a little bit of JavaScript, and from there, pick a backend language in the database, and then they're sitting here trying to figure out just how to get their their web page showing up in a in a web server, and they feel inadequate, and that you know it just takes natural ability, and we forget that we learned all of these things, you know, in in small wins and a little bit at a time. Yeah, we weren't born knowing it either. We forget that sometimes. I think. And. There's so many other things to Git and GitHub. That's almost a necessity now, right? Mm -hmm. You know, oh, I want to work on this thing. Before you used to just have to unzip something, right? You just went to the website, you pulled down the tar file or zip file, depending on the architecture you were working on, and you had the code. Yeah. And now there's this whole other thing, cloning and, you know. Yeah. I'm hoping someone learned how to program and do that for a while. And um, they're like, okay, so I've, I've made my first website. It's on like it's on their computer and they look at it in their browser using the file colon slash slash slash, right? How do I put it on the internet? And I was like, oh, it's easy. <laughs> GitHub <laughs> pages. <laughs> right? just, just register DNS. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's way easier than mm. DNS. You don't have to know DNS. You can use GitHub pages, but of course then you have to know Git. And that's a painful process. Right. Yeah. My thinking and what I tell people that who want to learn to program or are not super experienced yet is master your editor and learn Git. Uh, Carrie Miller has a great talk about the need to fail, to learn things, the need to experiment. And knowing your editor well and knowing Git well will help so much towards that goal. Because with Git, you know, you add things to Git and you keep track and you change and you want to go back, you go back, you jump around, you wipe things out and reset things. Um, so knowing Git well, at least well enough, is such a big help. Uh, it makes you go from, from, I don't know, from two to eight as a developer, yeah. I think. <laughs> and uh, not to say that, not, not to mention that it's super useful. You go, you're going to need it anyway to put things on the web and things like that. Yeah, I completely agree. There's a, there's a new series by Mark, Michael Hartle that he and some colleagues are working on called Learn Enough to be Dangerous. So it's at learnenough.com. And then the, the very first thing that he gives you is a tutorial for the command line. Like, get just enough command line to be dangerous. Um, and then the second thing is a text editor. And the third thing is Git. That's super important. I have a friend that's breaking into programming, and I have him developing off of uh, just a, an Ubuntu Linux machine just so he can get enough uh, basic commands moving around, copying yep. files. Like uh, It's almost a necessity these days. And 
One thing I like about the evolution of Linux is that it's much more approachable for people. But I think one drawback to that is many of the lessons I learned in tech were through diagnosing problems in Linux. You know? <laughs> Why is the networking not working? And like each one of those little problems is a, is a learning lesson. Yeah. But the problem is, is, is giving people lessons or giving people problems that are easily approachable with their knowledge. It's kind of like just beyond their boundaries and not, you know, something just totally off the wall, like having to recompile your video driver and patch it because <laughs> it doesn't work with the newest kernel version or something. You know? Yeah, that's not very friendly <laughs> towards newbies who are trying to learn to program for the first time. But yeah, I think I think a little bit of Linux knowledge, at least being able to SSH and understanding what SSH is and and in this day and age, security is a big thing. So understanding a little bit about how firewalls work and, mm -hmm. and cross site scripting and but you can't think about too much of it at once is the problem. Mm -hmm. And I wish there was like a, a steps thing, because that's always the hardest part I find is I could write down all the things you need to learn you know, to write a production site, but what order to approach those? Because it feels like circular dependencies. Mm -hmm. It's, it's easy to make small exercises for syntax and for standard library stuff, but it really isn't easy to figure out which order to teach things like, you know, like you were saying, DNS and SSH and networking, de debugging, troubleshooting. Yeah, understanding HTTP protocol and cookies yeah. and, and things like that. And now, I mean, TLS is becoming, you know, almost a requirement. So now you have to understand a little bit about that. And it feels like we're, we're evolving, but we're making it harder to break into. So, I mean, I used to just throw caution to the wind and drop, <laughs> drop uh, PHP or Perl files up on a shared hosting <laughs> site. <you know? laughs> Which, let's say, I mean, it totally worked. Yeah, you needed to know it how did. to use an FTP client, and that was about it. Was Those about were the it. days. Yeah. Those were the, just make sure it's in the right directory and everything was taken care of. Yeah. So this is actually an interesting thought, though, too. Like, would something like Exorcism work in learning Linux basics or things like that, you know, configuring Apache or Nginx or, like, little micro successes there to help people kind of learn kind of the systems level of the field. I think it would work, but I don't know how we would do feedback. Like, I think we could make a lot of very small challenges that people could be successful with, but I don't know how we would look at what they did and say, you could do it better in this way. Hmm. Yeah, you're right. The feedback part, aside from the fact that it works, would be difficult I, I suppose if you're looking at different ways somebody wrote you know a, a system b unit file or something you could say oh well you don't actually want to modify the original you know you can do the overrides and the mm -hmm. and so i suppose there's stuff like that but the hard part would be transitioning that because i feel like you'd want to start with some sort of like base vm or container that had most of the stuff there and then you know they just needed to complete some task for, say, the site to work or something like that. That is actually really useful. Having something that basically works and just change one thing. Uh, I think that or, or like that almost works and just find the one troubleshoot, to find the one one change you need to make. I think that would be a fantastic model. Here's a here's a 
container that has the caddy set up with uh, your blog auto-generating, but the service doesn't start when yeah. the container starts, you know, and go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but yeah, that'd be interesting to start thinking about some other things like that that are kind of like ancillary um, bits of knowledge that are kind of required to do what we do. Mm-hmm. Talking about ancillary bits of knowledge, read the errors. It is not yeah. until you become <laughs> like beaten, beat, beaten up by years of years of programming and debugging that you really give in and okay. Reading the error log is profitable. I'm going to do it. It's amazing. You, uh, when people are due to programming, you tell them, read the error log, <laughs> and they don't. And you tell them, read the error log, and they don't. It takes a while for you to really convince yourself that it's super profitable. I would actually ask people, so what, you know, what does the error say? And they would flip back to their terminal and say, well, I, you know, I think what's wrong is, and I was like, no, 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 no what does the error say? And they're like, well, it says that they're... I'm like, no, read it out loud. Yeah. (laughs) Tell me the words. Because it's so important. Yeah. But how many times do we catch ourselves not reading the error? I I do it at least once a week where the the error message is staring me right in the face, telling me exactly what's wrong. And I change 16 other things trying to fix it before I realize what I've done. Yep. Yeah, I'm always making assumptions. And then I feel foolish. Yeah, because we are all foolish. Let's just be honest here. I think we are in a hurry more than anything else. Yeah. Yeah, I think we are. About six years ago, I d- was freaking out, basically, because I thought I had to learn everything. Like, every new article that I saw was another thing I had to learn. And I had this backlog of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of articles and things and tutorials and technologies I had to learn. And I finally decided that I was going to give up. I was not going to learn anything. I was going to only do research or learn something new for one of two reasons. The first one was if I had an error, I would slow down and figure out exactly why I had the error. No more like jump on Stack Overflow and guess, like copy and paste and see if maybe the error goes away, whether or not I understand, you know, how, how it went away. And the second reason was I am just too curious and I can't not learn the thing. But the error thing is kind of the most important. Yeah, that's a good good rule to live by. Yeah, I need to go through and clear out all my bookmarks of, of things that I want to learn and accept that some of the stacks of books that I've bought, I'm just never going to get to. Because I tend to want to, to, to dive in, like there'll be some new thing that I'm challenged with. I'm like, oh, that seems cool. And I want to know everything I can about it. So I'll buy books and I'll bookmark sites. And then I start to realize that I don't have time to make it through one of those books, much less five. And Yeah. I try to put off actually bookmarking or searching or buying until I sit down and decide to do it. Because it's like, I know how to Google. I can find those links if I want to. I can find the books if I'm ready. I have a whole weekend to spend on something, I'm sure I'll find good resources. I don't have to, I don't have to save it off ahead of time. That's true. Just kind of do it real time rather than pre-plan your, your learning flow. It's hard though, because it's tempting. Well, speaking of errors, our other sponsor is Backtrace. 
And software teams like to use Backtrace to take the headache and guesswork out of debugging across their environments. Backtrace jumps into action when your Go application fails, capturing detailed application state, including a set of Go routines and channels, the wait durations, and even scheduler information. They analyze all the state and they archive it for you in a centralized object store, which allows you to explore all of the interesting patterns across your errors and plug rich error data into your resolution workflow tools. A lot of really cool companies like Fastly, Limelight Networks, Message Systems, and AppNexus are using Backtrace. And you can check out their website or blog, including their details on their premium Go support. Go to backtrace.io slash GoTime. And if you watched Katrina live on Twitch at GopherCon, it's because Backtrace supported that. So we like Backtrace. Thank you. Thank you, Backtrace. That was perfect. <laughs> it fell kind of right in. We planned it. It was all plans. Everything we do is planned. <laughs> we we all knew we all knew the way the topic was going to flow. <laughs> uh, so I think we're we're I think we've got what about twenty minutes left. And I wanted to get to a technology you had mentioned in the email, uh, Katrina, which is the uh, GraphQL API. Mm, yes. Like that. That's been something that has been kind of on my radar for probably a year or two, the whole notion of GraphQL. Um, and yeah, I'd love to talk about that more. Let's do it. Should I start? Yeah, yeah. So, so I was going to write a, just a little tool a couple weeks ago. And this was a tool that the idea is to use the GitHub APIs to get more data about the health of a repo or a health, the health of a project. And by health, the things that I'm thinking about the most are how responsive are the maintainers? Um, if you post an issue or if you submit a pull request, how long does it take you to get someone from the core team uh, to comment on that or give you some idea that you are not posting into a black hole? So that's one thing. The other thing is, are there any are there any people actually commenting on pull requests and issues? It doesn't even need to be the maintainers. Like if someone's giving a code review, it doesn't really need to be someone who has commit on the project. So I wanted to use the the APIs, the GitHub APIs, to find this information because it's not obvious um, just by looking at the repo, and realized that I was going to have to make basically a bajillion requests. And for every request that I made, I was going to have to make an extra request to figure out some ancillary information that I needed in order to do this analysis. And this was like a week before GitHub announced the GraphQL uh, integration. Hmm. Um, so the thing about GraphQL is you can now design your query up front uh, and get all of the data back and not have this n plus one problem uh, when talking to the API. So that's pretty exciting. So I didn't even realize that GitHub had GraphQL APIs now. The only place I had really seen leverage it which was Facebook where it came out of. But uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's really cool the, the way you kind of nest uh, the information that you want and they kind of have these little, I don't know what you would call the little additions where you can kind of do the you know first, last, and they probably have naming for, for those little operations or directives or whatever they call them. And then they mute, you can mutate the data 
I just, it was really cool thinking about that where you have this kind of like highly nested data where you don't want to have like your your looping problems and stuff like that but that's so have you actually had a chance to work with graphql nope it's on my list for when i get home from this trip this current one yeah so i have i have to admit i have yet to work with it but it did seem interesting and brian and i uh, a couple years ago were working on a project that kind of had the that kind of nested data where you wanted to get this tree of information and and do counts on some of them and things like that and uh we ended up designing something different graphql just it wasn't released yet and i don't think right Brian? no it was something that facebook had started talking about but it, it was it was unreleased at that point it, it probably would have worked but it maybe it wouldn't have been fast enough i don't know so in your concept of doing this this kind of intelligent querying against the github api is just to kind of rate the contributors to a given project to kind of determine who should have what role or yeah there are two things one is where do i need to put my attention with exorcism i have 70 repositories and uh it's really really hard to know what the state of everything is and i get you know 500 notifications every week about issues that i need to look at and so i need to know if there are repositories where the maintainers are on top of things. I can put that in a different filter in my inbox and I can check in like once a week or uh, every other week and just make sure that they don't need me for anything, but they've, they've got this. Uh, and then for the ones that are not, that don't have responsive maintainers, I can uh, spend more time. I can filter that into something that I check every day and make sure that I give um, the feedback that needs to be given on a regular basis and much more um, aggressively. The other thing is for for a repository where someone is giving feedback and they don't have commit, it would allow me to find people who probably should have commit on that repository where they're doing the work of a maintainer, but they haven't been recognized as such yet. So I had a I had a working prototype where I was sucking down the the data but it wouldn't um but i was using the old apis not the graphql apis and so it wouldn't actually um it wouldn't work to to give me all the it wouldn't scale besides the use cases that you just gave us for the contributor the the maintainer for the consumer of the project i think it would be super awesome Every time I run into a project that I'm considering, unless it's a super, super well-established and well-known project, there is a checklist of things that I do. So I go through the issue list. I see if there are issues abandoned. I see if there are PRs abandoned. I see, or I see if people are commenting. I see if PRs are being closed. I see how many issues and how many PRs are open. Um, you know, of course, if it's a big, if it's an active project and there can be a ton of, of PRs open, open, but they are being cycled through quickly, that's fine. But if things are stale, I want to know those things and I do that manually. Yeah. <laughs> so that would be so awesome if you, we could uh, have that. Yeah. I mean, this, this would potentially let you sit, run it against a repo and say, um, Yes, people are getting responses, and that would actually work even if there are not um, there's not a lot of activity. If the activity, if people get a response very quickly, 
uh, even though the, the project is mostly stable, then it's still a good project to contribute to. Whereas if it's a, a project where the average response time are like months or years, you might not want to contribute. Super cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Although I have to say I've never worked on a project so big that re- would require hitting the API to determine the state of my project. Like that's, yeah. a, that's a whole new yeah. world. <laughs> but sometimes you, don't, you might not be a maintainer that works on a project that's so big, but you might have a ton of little projects. Yeah. And it's, it takes a lot of time to, keep, to be on top of everything. Yeah. yeah, I mean, doing, doing open source stuff on the side and, you know, also holding down a day job is, it's a, it's a struggle for a lot of people. So anything that can kind of help organize things and tell them where their minimum amount of time is best spent, I definitely think is advantageous. There's a really good question in the chat right now. Um, that is, what if a project is run by someone who closes the issue instantly and dismisses them? And that's really not healthy behavior at all. And I don't know if we could surface that with the data. Are they also giving a response when they close it? Like if all of the issues are closed within... There's, there's a difference between responding to an issue and closing an issue. So I don't know. It's, it's definitely something... That is very interesting to to look into. Yeah, because I think there's a lot of factors that go into that too, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe they're quick fixes that require commits. Maybe it's a duplicate of other issues. But I guess there would be there probably some somebody who's better at math than I could <laughs> figure out some insights into whether it's unhealthy closing of issues or you know maybe you can they can do some uh, text analysis on it and. Uh, do sentiment analysis on the text and determine if they're closing them with very negative comments all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks. Thanks for, thanks for the question, uh, Florin, that was mentioned in the GoTime FM Slack channel. Yeah. How awesome is it that our guests are answering questions live on Slack while we broadcast live? This is 2016 folks. This is it. <laughs> this is 2016. Uh, We've reached the future. In Katrina, you have also a blog that you post to, uh, like maybe not uh, super frequently, but the content is amazing. Uh, I know you have one blog post that coincidentally last week we had uh, Aaron, and I can't pronounce his last name, but from uh, going five minutes, and he took one of the concurrency examples from one of, from the three three trivial concurrency exercises for the confused newbie gopher. So he took exercise number two out of that and he did one episode of going five minutes. That's awesome. I didn't know you did that. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. So I'll, I'll link to it. Um, it's super, super uh, helpful. It's, that's, that's actually great to know. I just kind of write it. Sometimes I'll, I'll run into a question that it, Seems like there should be a good answer, but there is no blog post that really does that. And so I try to just write that blog post that somebody might stumble on um, that could be useful to them. The most recent thing I posted was, how do you take a static, like handcrafted website and turn it into something that Hugo generates if you discover that what you needed wasn't a brochure site after all, and you're actually adding things to it regularly. Um, it becomes really tedious if you're copying and pasting headers. And the the um, 
Hugo documentation is excellent reference uh, material. However, if you haven't really gotten into Hugo, it's hard to figure out when you have a more focused, like, I just want to figure out how to do X. I want to take, take my website and convert it to Hugo. So anyway, that's the type of blog post that I try to write is the little little thing that you stumble across and that was tricky and really does have a simple answer. I got to go read that. I've probably done 15 Hugo website cutups now and I'm getting yeah. really good, but I wish I had your blog post two years ago. Oh, the first time <laughs> is so hard. <laughs> it's painful. It's painful. Uh, so I think we got about 10 minutes of time and I'd love to move on to kind of some projects and news. And All I right. hope Brian's got a good one. I've got some big news I mentioned to share. One of our our uh, prolific re- uh, listeners, I almost said readers, one of our prolific <laughs> listeners, Chase Adams, had a brand new baby girl, Elle, and he's constantly tweeting pictures of him and her listening to Go Time FM. So we want to congratulate Chase and mom and baby Elle. Congratulations on the new Gopher addition to your family. There's no better news than babies. That's so exciting. He was reading okay. Go books to the baby while it was still in her stomach. That's how you do it. Um, that's, that's commitment. She'll be on, on Go Time giving us tip pretty soon. <laughs> soon enough. Guest on the show at two. Uh, so I, I think, Brian, you sent this out somewhere, and I'm stealing it because it was pretty awesome. Uh, there's this GitHub project where it's, it's completely written in Go, but it takes, a, it takes a picture and then creates kind of geometry shapes and, and rebuilds the image with it. And it's just, it's awesome. It's far beyond my ability, but this thing is pretty sweet. It's called Primitive. Oh, that's right. Uh, Fogelman? Yeah. GitHub.com slash Fogelman Primitive. They have a Twitter feed too, which is, they just, just posted something on Twitter. So I started following the Twitter feed too, because it's really neat. They take, take these images and turn them into a very low number of polygons using Go. And they're surprisingly artistic and fun to look at. So I followed their Twitter feed too. Yeah, this is just really, I, I love when people come up with like just creative uses for things that you totally would not have thought of. I did a, I, I did this this morning. I did a primitive rendition of the barbecue gopher from our, our gopher barbecue Slack channel. So I, I will drop that into our Slack here while we're talking so that everybody can, can see how cool primitive is while we're poking around here. Oh, I'm looking at the reading. This is beautiful. Yeah. It's just, I don't know who thought of this, but this is, just crazy like i want to go through like a picture collection and just run all of it through there i need to write a script let's see see what emerges this might have to be my next slide deck for my next talk the neat thing about it is that you can choose to output uh, a regular file or if you choose a gif it will create an animated gif for you and and show the process while it creates all of those polygons. And that is just so cool to watch. So I'm, I'm really enjoying that. That's actually a fun idea. Take your slide deck, run your slide deck through this, and then get new images. Very cool. All right, anybody else have any fun projects and news? 
I want to mention uh, something that I thought was super interesting, cool. Uh, Samir Ajam Ajmani, he manages the Go language team. He posted on Twitter a couple of days ago that he's looking for people who are using Go to teach university courses and because he wants to help them help them have better resources. So I really like to see Go moving in that direction. And also then I found out that there is a wiki page on the Golang wiki that lists a bunch of CS courses that are already using Go. I had no idea. That's brilliant. So spread the word. Yeah, right. I had no idea. So spread the word. And uh, because I think Go is such a good language for to, uh, to learn how to program. I oh, might be biased. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I don't know. I think it is. I was just having a conversation like two days ago with uh, somebody whose name I've already forgotten who teaches Go at a college in California, and he loves it. He says yeah, it's that's, perfect teaching mm-hmm. language. I know it's Todd McLeod. Maybe that's it. Right, Todd? Maybe. I don't know. I've slept since then, so I've forgotten. He teaches in Fresno. He recently did a Go Bridge workshop in Fresno. It's very cool. And actually, that is a good segue into my next thing that I want to mention, which uh, was mentioned by uh, Florian Patan in our ping repo. Thank you. Is a better Go Playground Chrome extension. And this thing is so cool. Basically, you install it on the Chrome and just leave it there. And every time you go to the play- Go Playground, you're going to have syntax highlighting. It gives you the option of having a dark or light uh, theme. Um, and it also says that it has autocomplete, I, but I haven't figured out how to activate it. And also, if you run your code and you have errors, the line, there will be an indication in the line telling you where the error is. So when I got the extension, I remember that the, the Todd had a bunch of snippets from the Go Playground, and I just went through the list and opened them in the Go Playground to test out this extension. And that's another thing, too, that takes pretty cool, the snippets that he's been putting out. In any case, that's what I wanted to mention for projects. And this needs. is like one step closer to Brian's ultimate goal, which is to just deploy a VM in the cloud and develop off of it. Oh, don't get me started. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm there. So maybe it's not during interesting, but maybe we should just have an episode on that because I've I completed it today, Eric. My goal is done. It is complete. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So, in fact, I showed it off to um, uh, somebody today and, and was pretty impressed. So the one thing I wanted to bring up was Gallium, which is the um, framework for building native web apps in Go, uh, much like uh, React Native, but Go native. And that is totally awesome. I can't wait to dig into that sometime in 2018 when I have some free time because it, it, it has all of the native app bits that you need. And then you can just start up a Go web server and uh, serve your UI through the native app. So super excited about that. We've needed a Go solution for that problem for a long time. That's at github.com slash Alex Flint slash Gallium. Go play with it. This is very much similar to like uh, Electron, but in Go. Yes, exactly. Oh, this is really cool. I, I, so this is a while back, but I was 
I was attempting to do something with Go and Ceph, which is the Chrome embedded framework. And I never, I never took off with it too far. I think mostly because of time, but this is, this is really cool. Yeah. It's like, I want to play with it a lot. I won't because I don't have time. Our first episode <laughs> in, I don't know, mid 2018, we will talk about what you did with it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so maybe that's a good segue into free software Friday. <laughs> <laughs> so if uh, familiar listeners will know that we love to uh, shout out to open source projects and maintainers and just let them know that we care. We love them. We love the work they do and we appreciate their projects. So I will start out today with something that's probably a little bit cheesy, but damn it, I love Go. And I've spent so much time this last week or two building uh, a lot of tooling for my training classes. And I just don't think there's a way in the world I could have done it without Go. It's just a couple hundred lines of code, and I've got a, a fully automated solution to bring new students online on a server with a Go environment and a web IDE uh, with two clicks. It's just amazing. I love Go. Thank you, Go. Thank you, Go team. Thank you, everybody who's contributed to Go. Big hearts everywhere. And you have a pretty cool course to teach people how to do that, right? That's true. I'm teaching a lot of classes upcoming in October. Boston, I've got an online class October 25th. 5th or 23rd, uh, whatever that 20-something week is, uh, both through O'Reilly. And if you're listening live, you can use discount code Kettleson, K-E-T-E-L-S-E-N, and get 25% off either one of those classes. I really want to take your online class online because I'm not in any of those places you'll be teaching. In they have Fastly. planes. Well, <laughs> I'll be lucky if Fastly pays for it, uh, so... I'm definitely going to be asking because the content from is, uh, you know, I think I'm right there just need, needing to master everything that's listed there. And I feel like I'm close, but also it's very confusing just to figure out what the idiomatic way is. And you spend a lot of time trying to figure that out instead, as opposed to just learning what the damn thing is. <laughs> so I think the course is perfect for, for me, for where I am. So I definitely want to take it. So this is the thing that Brian's been trying to show off to me for like the last week and I've been too busy. But so it creates a user, uh, sandboxes them inside of a container, copies over what the training material. It did a whole bunch of stuff. You had like a little command line tool for it. Everything. Yep. So you go to a web page with an invite code and it creates you a complete online Go development environment with a, a shell, a web shell and a web IDE, and it's all sandboxed, it's got Docker, and all you really have to do is fill in your name and an invite code and hit go, and it, it just works. Brilliant. So it's, it's, it almost falls into what we were talking about earlier, that idea of, of building environments for people to learn. And I noticed Andrew Durand uh, posted a slide deck about um, an idea today, uh, the, the Go Workspace tool that he's he's working on the same concept you know how do you get somebody from okay i've installed go to how do i start using go and there's a there's a gap there and yeah i'm i'm aiming to narrow that gap with my students and with some time i'd like to make it open source because i think it's it's powerful enough that it would be helpful for 
other people teaching? And for the record, he's not working on it. I think he's putting it out there and trying to entice people to, to take on the work where he left off. He's done some work, but he doesn't seem to have the bandwidth to continue. Oh, he's explicitly okay. said he's not working on it. Well, that's too bad. All right. So, Carlicia, you want to go next? Yeah. Uh, definitely want to give a shout out to Exorcism. How could we not? It's awesome. Uh, Katrina is awesome. <laughs> Everything about it is awesome. If I don't you think I want to know out. how much time she's invested into that. That's, yes. that's probably scary. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> There's battle scars. <laughs> and I also want to give a shout out to Go Convey. I have been using it a lot. I do. I don't use it as a test package. But I use it to, uh, we were talking about refactoring, right? Red, green. Um, so it gives you, if you boot it up on your project and you look and you open it on, a, your, on your browser, it just gives you that nice green, red, green, red. I don't have my editor set up to, to check compiler errors on tests. I check it on GoConfay go and I feel super productive like that. I'm just like changing things either on a test or on an alternative file, on the corresponding file, and I just get the notification from GoConvey, and it's quick, and it's been great. I love it. And I love color-coded things as well, so that also that makes me so happy. <laughs> I used to use it a lot, and I'm actually ashamed to say I haven't used it very much lately. I think it's like you jump in and you try to start doing stuff uh, quickly, and then that kind of becomes your pattern. And you fall off from some of these things. I need to start using it again. But it's so pretty having that dashboard. Yeah, and the browser notifications. Yeah. Yeah, and the green is such a pretty green. You want to see that green all the time. <laughs> I long for the green. Oh, another thing that I love about it is that it gives you a percentage of your, of your, of your task coverage. So on the left, it keeps track, and you see that the bar inching up as you add tasks. And every time you change a test, uh, if there was a change to the code coverage, you see like an up, if, if it was increased, you will see an up error with a notification. And if it was a decrease, you will see a down error with a notification. So it's sort of like a game. You just want to see the up error all the time. You, you don't want to, you want to see an error there. Because if there is no, you change something, there is no change in the code coverage. It doesn't give you anything. So you just keep, want to keep seeing that. At least I want to say we, I say me, right? Want to see the up error there all the time. <laughs> it's like that stupid uh, fuel economy gauge in my car. You know, every time I see it, I'm like, oh, I need to back off the gas. <laughs> <laughs> So the hard part with that, though, is is by gamifying it like that, um, you can also get bad habits, too, because you can increase code coverage with meaningless tests, too, because code coverage just means that every line is executed. It doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, you're actually testing real world use cases and, and paths to, to the program. But yeah, that's the hard part with the, the aiming for 100 percent code coverage. You can get there. And not necessarily have a good test suite, but that's I a think, show all on its own. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, that is true. But but at least like if you if you if if you look at your code and you know, I mean, Go also has a, a very good uh, test coverage tool. If you if you haven't exercised that path, 
you know, you, you, you know, you should, right? So maybe you write a test and it's not going to be the best test. And maybe you're going to be, I don't know, misleading. But at least I, I think uh, not having a test is bad. Having tests that are not good tests is like, okay, it's not good. But, you know, you, you got to make it better. But and then have, the next step is having tests that are meaningful. Yeah, any tests are better than no tests. Agreed. It's funny because uh, I think we talked about this an episode or two ago. You know, in the Ruby world where testing was religious, I didn't like writing tests and I didn't write a lot of tests. And now in Go, I, I very frequently do TDD and I test everything and it's, it's strange. And I have that compiler backing me up too. I, I don't mm -hmm. know. Strange. In Ruby, a lot of the tests were so slow that it was just painful. In Go, the tests are much, uh, much quicker. You know, maybe that's mm -hmm. it. Maybe it's, it's the nearly instantaneous response time. I'm impatient. Fast test is what hooked me into Go. Go had me at fast test. Yeah, fast tests was my motivation to learn how to refactor so that I could have less decoupling and load uh, fewer dependencies when I was testing my code. That's kind of a big goal of mine. I always find it hard when I'm, I'm up against something that requires a lot of mocking and stubbing in order to fake out back end. But I, I can't stand that having to require having some, you know, uh, an etcd cluster like for this thing to run against. And I'm like, I, I don't want that. That means I can't just run it on my laptop while I'm on an airplane and, you know. Well, that's that's that brings up a completely random thought about uh, the the gopher slack. We have a barbecue channel. And we are building a, a PID controller for our, our barbecue grills, which will automate keeping the grill at a particular temperature by um, controlling the airflow into the fire pit. And the first thing I did when I started writing the code was build out the interfaces because seriously, I don't want to have to test um, I2C interface on a Raspberry Pi. I just don't. You, know, well, you those, shouldn't have to. Yeah, those are things that I want to mock immediately. And so I built all the interfaces first, and I'm building mocks now for all of them. Even without having all of the hardware, you know, I'll be able to prove most of the application logic is good before we get it put together. So now uh, the benefit of doing only end-to-end -end testing, so granted development time is longer, but it tastes way better. <laughs> part of the slow go movement yeah, it's actually so surprising how many people are um are, are really kind of jumping in on the project too awesome yeah that's github.com slash bbq gophers if anybody wants to jump in and, and join we're having a ton of fun raspberry pies and and little bits of electronics and lots of go and barbecue. Don't forget the barbecue part. That's, that's the important thing. And, I, and we might have won the best name ever. So the, the PID controller that we're writing is called Cupid. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's adorable. You win. <laughs> you win the internet. So my project uh, this week is Boson, which came out of uh, Stack Overflow which is this really cool library that can kind of go up against time series databases, uh, OpenTSDB, um, Elasticsearch and FluxDB, 
and basically has this kind of like expressive language that you can use to do counts and, and aggregates and things like that, and then uh, do alerting based off of that. So it's great for monitoring barbecue, which might also be very good for monitoring barbecue. Is that how it came up? It, that is exactly how, well. So Comcast is using it too internally. So I have to be fair. Like that's what <laughs> we're using for Kubernetes monitoring and alerting. But yeah, but it came up for this episode because we were talking about somebody suggested uh, another one, and then I suggested this one for monitoring the the grill temperatures. Metrics, or it didn't happen. <laughs> All right, and. I don't want to blindside you here, Katrina, but did you have anybody you wanted to uh, give a shout out to? I do. I would love to give a shout out to the Hoodie team. They are an open source project who... So the, this is someone who knows how to do community. They have possibly the healthiest open source community um, and healthiest open source project that I have ever seen in my whole life. And I aspire to basically become them if I can when I grow up. Um, they, a lot of communities are ragtag, sort of struggle with things like communication and triage and issues and prioritization and documentation. And they have, they've built tools around the entire onboarding process to become a contributor, to mentor contributors, and they value all contributions equally. It's not like you're, me- you're, you're measuring who gets commits into master. They, they help build out the tools so that it's clear that they value mentorship and value documentation and value triage and, and project um, management. And I just think that what they've done with their communities is absolutely amazing. Um, they had one of their, one of their team members was on another changelog, um, episode not too long ago, uh, Jan Lennart, um, who might be pronounced Jan Lennart, but I don't actually know in human, in in human space and meat space. He was on the request for commits, um, episode number four, talking about building healthy communities. Absolutely worth a listen. That's the person I was referring to. When I mentioned that uh, he went away on vacation, came back, and people were talking in his voice, and I was comparing him to Katrina, to you, Katrina, how I see that I saw, I noticed that pattern as well with exorcism. I'm so flattered. I want to be him when I grow up. Like <laughs> <laughs> Let's not end the show. Can we just keep going? <laughs> Let's just keep going. Uh, just let um, it roll. Unfortunately, it has to end sometime. I think we would all get hungry. Well, soon my kids will be knocking on the door. Feed Feed us. (laughs) Feed us. Feed us. All right. Well, it's been a very awesome show. Thanks so much for coming on, Katrina. Thanks so much for inviting me. This has been a lot of fun. I think we really covered a wide gamut of things in this show that's uh, atypical. Uh, we, We hit a lot of territory in this show. Choosing the uh, the headline for the episode will be fun. Hmm. Like which things to mention. So. Yeah. But yeah, definitely thank you for coming on. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. 
And thanks to all the listeners and everybody who's kind of participating live in the Slack channel. And for next week, if anybody else wants to participate, we're on the Gopher Slack and GoTime FM. Uh, we are GoTime FM on Twitter. Uh, we are GoTime.FM online if you want to subscribe, if you haven't already subscribed. Uh, big shout out to our sponsors, Linode and Backtrace, for this episode. And if you want to be a guest or you want to suggest guests or topics, uh, github.com slash gotimefm slash ping. And I think I covered everything. All right, everybody. It's been fun. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks. Bye-bye.